Welcome to the Institute of Ideas podcast with me, David Bowden. The Battle of Ideas began in earnest last night with the joint launch of its satellite programme featuring events in both London and Glasgow. Over the next two months, satellite events will take place across London, the UK and Europe on key issues confronting society. Battle debates will take place everywhere from Derby to Athens as we continue the battle's mission to expand the boundaries of public debate. Last night's launch at the Barbican in London featured a debate entitled A Tale of Two Cities, Is Inequality Killing London? Part of the Barbican's Colour of Money season. The panel featured Jamie Ratcliffe, Assistant Director for Housing at the Greater London Authority, Betsy Dilner, the Director of Campaign Group Generation Rent, Shane Croucher, Senior Writer for the International Business Times, and Michael Owens, Commercial Director of the Arts Trust. The discussion was chaired by me, David Bowden, the Associate Director of the Institute of Ideas. On the discussion tonight, I think everyone has conversations in all aspects of their life about how difficult it is living in London uh, in terms of its kind of costs, in terms of its challenges, in terms of what you worry about for, uh, uh, for younger people, for people who are on a, uh, a lower wage. Interestingly, perhaps, a lot of these kind of criticisms that we've heard about London's expense are coming now increasingly more from people who you would have assumed were the wealthy elite a generation ago. Actually, I mean, you hear more and more complaints from uh, high-level journalists, from uh, middle-class professionals that they struggle to get by in London. The the issues, therefore, for people who are on uh, lower incomes, uh, who are younger and perhaps not as established, are obvious. Um, It's also interesting to have this discussion in the context of a Labour leadership election where there has been uh, you know, a lot of excitement, a kind of lot of enthusiasm about a radical um, candidate who really wanted to try and tackle um, a lot of the kind of big problems of inequality and a kind of lack of kind of affordability and kind of is really put forward a programme for abundance for all. Unfortunately, David Lammy didn't win the uh, Labour leadership uh, for mayor, who was the one who argued most strongly for greater increase of the housing supply in London. So it was Sadiq Khan, who has his own programme for trying to tackle um, these issues. That's obviously something he's going to be taking forward uh, in the uh, mayoral elections against Zach Goldsmith, possibly, probably. This is going to be a live political debate that's going to be going on over the next 12 months, but hopefully we can try and pick apart what actually can be done about this issue if there are ways in which and practical causes of the issues of inequality or is this just a kind of inevitability of having a a city of London's size its kind of international demand are all of the kind of problems of inequality really ones that are confronting um, the rest of society Um, so uh, you've heard quite enough from me without much further ado Jamie Thanks, Dave. So I'm the Assistant Director responsible for housing, working for the Mayor of London. I'm going to try and give you a little bit of context to this debate in terms of some demographic statistics and then also a very short bit on one specific thing we're doing to address some of the inequality that I see um, and then hopefully there'll be a much broader debate afterwards. I guess the first thing for me to say, unsurprisingly, is taking the 
title here. I, I don't think London is being killed. I don't think it's um, dying. Um, actually, many of the problems that London's facing is that it's too successful, that it's booming. London's growing by about 100,000 people every year. Um, earlier this year, it passed its um, pre-war peak. Um, so it's now the largest city it's ever been. Um, and we're seeing, we are seeing incredible pressures. Um, there's no doubt that house prices um, are very high and out of reach of lots of people, and rents are very high too. Um, and that's because of its incredible popularity, not because it's dying. In terms of um, inequality, which, which I guess we'll try and get into in a lot more detail, th there's obviously been a lot written about this recently. I'm sure I'm not the only person in this room to have an entirely unopened copy of Thomas Piketty's book on my bookshelf. Um, I, I think it looks very good. My wife disagrees because it is combined with lots of other books I haven't got around to reading yet. But in terms of that, the focus that we've got on inequality, we have to remember that actually inequality has been really bad in the past as well, along with some really awful housing conditions that we had um, in post-war and pre-war times. I, I was recently researching my family tree a little bit and I found out that my grandfather was actually born in a house about half a mile from where I live at the moment. Um, he lived in a, a, a very small two-up, two-down terrace house along with six of his um, brothers and sisters um, and his two parents um, in really crowded conditions, which certainly aren't the norm across the city now, but definitely were in 1911. If you look at the average household size, it's been declining steadily since it was measured in the censuses um, since 1931, when you know, the average household size was almost four per household, and that obviously included many people um, who lived in much smaller households. Since then, it's declined every single census, until the last census, actually, when household size rose, um, showing that we are actually getting towards um, increasing pressure on housing, people having to live in much closer proximity to people, and the, the housing costs are putting pressure on it. I, I guess one of the other parts of this is around people having to leave London because it's too expensive, and if you've got bullshit bingo cards, this is probably the first one you've got, that Samuel Johnson's quote, once you're tired of London, you're tired of life, was dreamt up for these very people. People have always left London. People in their middle ages, once they've um, decided to have children, become bored of London and they go and continue their life in other places. We are still a growing city and vast numbers of young people are coming to London. There's huge population growth amongst people in the sort of 20 to 30 age bracket who are attracted to London as an incredibly exciting place to come and live. But obviously housing costs are expensive. People do say that poor people can no longer live in London, poor people can no longer live in central London. And that does ignore the fact that actually as a whole, a quarter of all homes in the city are owned by councils and housing associations and let on very low rents. In inner London, it's a third um, of all homes. In some particularly very expensive boroughs like Islington, Hackney and Southwark, it's actually almost half of the homes are owned by councils and housing associations. And there's some electoral wards in those areas where two-thirds of homes are owned by councils and housing associations. Um, we could probably have an interesting debate about what the right level of affordable housing is, but I'm not sure there's many people that would say that half of all homes being affordable isn't enough. The, the point of inequality that I wanted to focus on was, is actually around um, declining home ownership, and there's a lot of talk at the moment that we've gone back to the 1980s in many ways, but actually in terms of tenure split, London's now back pretty much to where it was in 1971, with um, less than half of people owning their own home and that's been on a, a steady downwards trajectory now since the 1980s. The current government's really focused on doing what it can to increase home ownership, and over time we'll see how successful that is. But there are many reasons that point to that's going to be a very, very significant challenge in London. Um, and home ownership is the way that most people have their wealth, um, where most people's wealth is concentrated, how they save, how they prepare for later life. And there are some really big discussions 
for society around how you cope with pensions, how you pay for care costs, what it means for intergenerational inequality to have that declining level of home ownership. One of the things that we're doing to address that is around um, seeing, trying to see a really significant expansion in um, terms of affordable home ownership, particularly in shared ownership, which is part buy, part low rent, where there's an ambition to see many, many more um, homes be delivered. We're um, working with a number of um, long-term investors in pension funds and insurers and hope sometime next month to be able to announce some deals with them where they will invest their money into affordable housing and be able to deliver many more homes than would otherwise be the case on a long-term basis that shouldn't need any government subsidy, um, which, which I think is really interesting. And, and in terms of who the potential market is for those homes, we set an income cap in relation to um, the maximum income of people that could buy one of those homes, which is currently at £71,000, which covers 90% of all working Londoners. So we're not talking about a small niche of people that need to be helped into affordable home ownership. It's basically almost everybody. I'll leave it there. Betsy. Hi, everybody. My name is Betsy Delnar. I'm the director of Generation Rent. We are a national campaigning organization for the rights of uh, the 11 million private renters in the UK. Uh, we've only been funded and staffed since 2014, and I think that's uh, mostly due to the massive increase in the numbers of people in the private rented sector, but also uh, the continuing problems and, and sort of lack of political will of, of dealing with those problems. I, th I know we're talking about inequality, and inequality has a lot of factors, meaning wages, uh, access to health care, access to education, but I think this is quite quickly turning into a conversation about housing, and because we are a housing group, uh, that's what I know, and that's what I'll stick to. But I do think it's important to, to say that inequality can be a multitude of factors in people's lives. But housing especially is quite a unique area in that it is intrinsically connected to the labor force, to people's physical and mental well-being, to their financial security, like Jamie was suggesting around mortgage and, and the, the relationship to, to people's pension, people's connections to their community and their security to their community, and their access to, to fun things in life like culture and outside space and those sorts of things. So, And I think that because of that, we desperately need to sort out the housing sector in this country because of all of those things. Um, and the absurdity of our political framework and how we're using or how we're, how we're addressing housing is exemplified by the problems that we're facing in the private rented sector. So the private rented sector has doubled in more than, uh, more than doubled in the last 10 years. And while... Jamie pointed out there are many affordable housing options out there in the council and housing associations. The political framework now is to sell those off at a massive discount that may be beneficial for that individual that gets on the housing ladder, but then does not give the resources for that council or that housing association to then replace it so that there is a continuing stock of affordable housing for the next generation of people that are going to need access to that affordable housing. And before we go to... I think that I think that if we do not address these issues, 
And I agree with Jamie that the reason we have these issues is because London is a fantastic city. I've moved thousands of miles away from my family to be here because it's a fantastic place. And I think this is a sim symptom of London being a fantastic place. And it hasn't killed it yet, but it is completely unsustainable if we do not sort out how we're going to do this and wean ourselves off of the addiction to capital gain and seeing a home as an investment vehicle and not actually a human need that we all need to keep the economy going, to keep people happy and healthy, and to keep our culture alive. Shane? Hi, I'm uh, Shane. I'm a journalist for International Business Times. Um, I'm not a policy wonk, so I'm sorry. This is going to be slightly more rhetorical than uh, statistical. But um, thanks, Dave, and thanks, everyone, for, for coming along. So A Tale of Two Cities is inequality killing London. Um, it's an urgent question, but one that invites cynicism, uh, not least because London is uh, among the most cynical people on the planet. So for perspective, I'll start on a relatively positive note. Um, so this is instead a tale of two inequalities. Compare London with every other city in the UK. We have some of the best performing state schools. We're one of the healthiest cities in the world. We're incredibly well served by road, rail, water and air. And the investment keeps rolling in. Five of the 20 most visited museums in the world are in London. We're the culinary capital of the world. I recently ate food from Azerbaijan. It was terrible, but I didn't have to fly to Baku to try it. Uh, so, so London's amazing. And living in, living in this city is an inequality that's in our favour. But it's no utopia. So... It has massive problems, the highest rate of child poverty in all English regions, obesity, mental health issues, unemployment, low incomes, welfare cuts and all the rest of it. But these challenges exist elsewhere in the country too and many are issues for national government. Um, so perhaps I can sum it up like this. The only thing worse than living in London is not living in London. For me, the biggest issue in London is the one which appears to be unique to the city and which has the most significant impact on the lives of millions of ordinary people living here, and that's housing. Um, housing is a basic right. Everyone's owed the chance to live in their own secure property. And talk about deficits and debts is fashionable at the moment, so let me put it like this. There's a house-building deficit in London which every year adds to a housing debt owed to the rising population. So rents have spiralled as of house prices. Most Londoners can't afford to buy a home. Many can barely afford to rent a room. Some young professionals are even sharing a room, moving onto boats on crowded canals and living as property guardians in unfit buildings. Housing benefit cuts are purging some social tenants out of the city because rents are rising so much and there's a lack of social housing. So obviously the government's cutting back on housing benefit and those that are in the private rented sector having that subsidised have to move on. For those few who can scrape together a deposit, they're having to borrow vast sums to buy their first home, and that's risky when the Bank of England will soon be raising interest rates from the historic lows, so look out for some defaults. Um, so who do we blame, and what can we do about this? Do we point fingers at the foreign investors pumping money into London property safe haven, domestic buy-to-let investors, hipster gentrification, the government? Maybe rent control is a solution, uh, or something drastic like stopping all buy-to-let investment in London. Surely we must do something about the power imbalance between landlords and investors on the one side and renters and first-time buyers on the other. But nothing is ever simple, and there are always costs. So some say measures like these will actually reduce the housing stock in London over time because fewer landlords and developers will be tempted into the market in the first place. Yet all of the aforementioned is symptomatic of the fundamental cause, and that's an, an intense housing shortage. The only solution to London's housing crisis is to build more homes, to go up into the sky and out into the green belt. We're building new homes at around half the rate the city currently needs, and we haven't built enough new homes for decades. And on the current path, we won't be building enough anytime soon. 
This is despite projections that London's population will hit 10 million by 2030. A shrinking supply and rising demand equals higher house prices, higher rents, and more of London's income spent just on keeping a roof over their heads. It's making the wider city poorer because people have less disposable income to lavish on the retail and leisure sectors. And what's more, London needs workers and workers need somewhere to live. Creatives, low-income families, migrants, all are being forced out or kept out by by the city's housing costs. The very character of London, its melting pot of classes, cultures, creeds, is at risk. It's uh, simple to say, but getting more houses built is pretty hard to do. So how can it be done? We can do and are doing more on the brownfield sites in the city. And the London Land Commission uh, was launched earlier this year and it's due to report. Uh, And we must be less queasy about the idea of going up into the sky because there's this strange regressive idea out there that London's skyline should look permanently like a Canaletto painting. But most important is the giant green elephant in London, or rather around London, and that's the Metropolitan Green Belt. This belt strangles London. It's archaic, it's misunderstood, it's a burden on the backs of all Londoners. Many perceive it to be rolling hillsides and woodland where badgers and foxes stroll merrily poor in poor and in every second field is a village fate where elderly women sell strawberry jam and raffle tickets. And this animals of farthing wood perception of the green belt is a myth. Most of it's agricultural land, much of it intensely, intensively farmed and it's hardly an environmental haven. Some of it's golf courses and just a fifth of it is public access land. Uh, what we need and what is not being delivered is a comprehensive green belt review to reassess what land is worthy of protecting and what could be built on. This isn't a Shropshire village, this is a world city. So let's get real about the green belt and our housing needs because the green belt serves the interests of a wealthy few and not the millions in this city. It's going to be a difficult political fight. The rural lobby and the NIMBYs are well-funded and they have all the bureaucratic weight of the state's planning law in their favour. But on this side, we have the best arguments. We have the emotional weight of an urgent housing crisis to underpin a rational case against the Green Belt. Um, We can become assessed with inequality in its broadest sense and banging on about bankers and corporate fat cats and hedge fund gurus and all the rest of it. But rather than getting angry about the caviar class, we should focus on the achievable political goals that would improve the lives of the low and middle income people in this city. And in London, that means dealing with the disgraceful cost of housing for which tenants and home buyers are blameless, for which successive administrations of all stripes are responsible, but for which ordinary Londoners, Londoners, the blood that runs through this city's veins, are paying the price of. So to paraphrase Ronald Reagan at the Brandenburg Gate, Mr Johnson, tear down this green belt. And Mick. Thanks, Dave. I suppose the first thing I would say when we think about, the, think about inequality and, um, and the way that we kind of feel about our city vis-a-vis inequality at the moment is to kind of... I think it's useful as a reminder that there's a large section of London society that's thriving, actually. You know, the, I mean, there are some people who have thrived since the onset of the period of austerity. We haven't had Greek-style austerity in London. If you're not thriving, then probably like many of us here, you're making ends meet, you're getting by, you're holding on somehow by the skin of your teeth, and some people are indeed moving out, you know. Uh, I think taxi drivers are typical in living in, uh, you know, the Maidstones in Kent and the, the Basildons in, in Essex and so on. Um, but I, I think it's, it's important to say that, you know, in the first instance, the idea that somehow London is at crisis um, doesn't resonate with people's, with many people's experience. 
Nonetheless, I think that you know inequality as an idea does connect with us somehow. It does, you know, it, it resonates with, uh, with with something that we know in it, and it feels different than the past. I would say. So, you know, we've talked about rising property values. The fact of it is, you know, that if you have a Victorian home, uh, you know, then, you know, you have uh, seen its value rise exponentially in recent years. And if you can do it now, you will indeed buy one of those council properties of the, pe- of the past, particularly if it's Parker Morris standards, particularly if it's brick bills and so on. So there is something happening in the property sector and we all know about it um, and those who don't have a deposit uh, now struggle so it resonates in that sense uh, and also I think that the the other thing that, that, that is familiar to us is this sense in which speculative investors um, use property not as uh, you know an investment in the use of the building but rather as a way to store cash you know that idea of international investments coming into London, homes lying empty, uh, buildings being lots and lots of flattered developments being built, and it kind of doesn't matter if they're occupied or not. So, in all of those senses, you know, I think that the idea of inequality connects with um, with some of our experiences. But I would say that um, yeah, there's, there's, there's an, a, a contemporary way in which we talk and think about inequality. And it's different from the way that we've talked about poverty in the past or the way that, we've, uh, that society has thought about poverty. Um, I would argue that, that in the past, um, you know, even with the great reformers around the turn of the century, uh, poverty was understood as a phenomenon that needed you know, people to have more resources, you know, to, to, for people to have more and for their conditions to be better. Uh, rather now, I would say, the way that we talk and think about inequality um, is in terms of its kind of, its sort of collateral problems, if you will, you know, that uh, the, the inequality is something to do with the sharing out of existing resources on the one hand, but it's also connected with these wider social problems. So we talk about inequality uh, in the same breath as fairness, uh, the people like the, the London Voluntary Services Council, the Equality Trust and so on, uh, they're very quick to draw that kind of conclusion about the relationship between inequality and wider social problems, crime, antisocial behaviour, um, you know, and so on. Those kind of, the idea that society is going to fragment. And I think there's a negative side to those kinds of perspectives in the sense that it calls for uh, therapeutic interventions fundamentally by the government. So I think there's a difference, there's a new and contemporary sense in which uh, inequality is considered and I think it's it's worth us thinking about that. I think that they're they're negative. I think that if you you accept broadly the idea that, that we have limited resources available and you seek to redistribute them, they kind of tax the rich sort of perspective, you know, the sort of the affluent Russians who are uh, 230 times uh, more affluent, the top million, uh, than the bottom million. If you kind of go for redistribution, first of all, I think it's really difficult to achieve. You know, I think, you know, people like Jamie are, are heroic in their attempts, but I think that, you know, frequently attempts to sort of to leverage existing resources and to make them work uh, to, to secure affordable housing in this case are really difficult to pull off. We all know that developers are really wily, you know, and they will kind of get around the get around the policies. So at best you have 
Yeah, the likes of the huge investments in the Olympic Park, nine billion uh, creates an athlete's village. And then the, you know, the, the, the public sector can say, well, okay, these houses are going to be for rent. It's not like the council house building of old. You know, these are essentially multi-occupied multi by young professionals. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you create some rented housing at great cost. I think the broader problem is that the, you know, loads, lots of the assets that are in the public sector are actually the council estates and the council stock. And so you end up being in kind of convoluted deals with developers uh, based on the idea of releasing uh, what was social housing uh, in order to get some money to invest. And so I think that broadly speaking, you know, when you get into the kind of technical work uh, to redistribute, it just gets uh, really messy. So, so you have all kinds of perverse consequences, again, uh, that I think it's worth talking about. I think that uh, in today's context, growth gets a really bad rap. And so I expect when Shane talks about building on the green belt, uh, then he wins himself lots of enemies as well as one or two friends. And I think it works like this. The people experience London as a place in which there's these kind of global flows of capital. There's a sort of neoliberal politics. There's these kind of eerie forces that have uh, taken over our world. Uh, and, you know, it's essentially all about asset stripping and rapaciousness. That's how I think the people understand growth. Okay, and I think that that is a real problem for us uh, in relation to the poverty that exists in some quarters of London. I think it's really ironic, actually, that people are so sort of um, dismissive about the idea, the, the idea of that kind of investment, given that it's the most dynamic part of the London economy. You know, were it not for the global flows of capital uh, through the city, then London's economy uh, would be in real trouble. So, uh, you know, I think there's a kind of, the sort of, you know, there's a sense in which you kind of get this sense that London was somehow better in the past uh, when you didn't have this kind of investment. You didn't have that kind of uh, growth with those negative con connotations. So, um, broadly speaking, I would agree with Shane that uh, the, the, the London's constraints uh, need to be removed. He talks about uh, removing the green belts. I think it's a good idea to extend the footprint of London. I I think that in, in unlocking growth, uh, there is a solution uh, to the problems of poverty that exist. And there are all kinds of good forces. There are people that want to come here. You know, tens of thousands of students descending on London's universities as we speak. Uh, you know, there's a store of skills over there in Calais that wants to come in. Clearly, uh, you know, London remains really attractive to skilled and, uh, and well-motivated people. I think there's all kinds of sectors that are productive like biotech, uh, like software, like the digital companies and so on, uh, that we should encourage and grow and put infrastructure behind them. So I would, I would say that you know, in relation to poverty, what we should do is focus on how we can remove the constraints uh, to London's growth and reframe the discussion in that sense. <laughs>